0: It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. Well, if you have a Bible with you, I hope you do. and invite you to open up to First Samuel chapter 17 as we continue our walk through the book of First Samuel. So before we get into the text, I'm going to share something that I'm going to... I shared this with the elders on our meeting this past Monday, and we got a little chuckle out of it. Or they got a little chuckle out of it. And made me get a chuckle out of it. I, um, You guys remember those things. And for those of you with children or when you were children, you know, like take your child to work day and all this um, kind of stuff, you remember those um, opportunities. Um, I was thinking about something and lis- listening to another, listening to a podcast or something of that nature. And it just made me, it, it struck home with me that, that we spend most of our waking hours, at least during the work week, we spend most of our waking hours at work. Um, and as Christ followers, then we are spending those those hours. Um, at least I hope we're spending those hours trying to honor Christ in our work. Um, and as your pastor, one of the things that that I want to do is I want to I want to know you well shepherd you well, and I want to pray for you in your work. Um, and then I began to see a little of the confluence of the coming together of this, take your dad to work or take your child to work kind of thing. And I thought, how cool would it be if I could actually go to some of your workplaces? And I'm not saying spend like 9 to 5 the whole day at your workplaces. And I recognize also some of you work in uh in places where, you know, you're not bringing anybody to work because you work in confidential places. I understand that. And so uh, I'm not even beginning to think that I would even probably get half of you to take me up on this. Um, but I mean this. I mean what I'm about to say. I mean this genuinely and sincerely from the bottom of my heart. Um, if you work in a place where I could come and spend an hour or two with you one time, not like every week, but just one time, just to come and see what your work is and to pray with you, know how to pray for you and your work, Um Come talk to me about it. I'd, I'd love to just to get a glimpse, uh, into what you're doing and how I could pray for you. Um, so yeah, so yeah. <laughs> amen. Uh, and yeah, dirty jobs. That's what one of the elders said. It sounds like Mike Rowe, dirty jobs. Um, uh, and yeah, I, it doesn't matter what you do. Uh, and so, and, and I know some pastors, they they come straight out of college, they go straight to seminary, and then they go straight. And so the only work they've ever known is uh, is uh, clergy work. Um, I, I did work for a good decade um, before the Lord uh, led me to vocational ministry. And so I have an idea of what vocational or, you know, everyday work, so to speak, is like. I have a good idea of what that is. But I might not have a good idea of what your work is like. Um and I love you enough to want to be able to pray for you well and to care about you. And so if that's something that you would think, oh, sure, I'd be happy to take, uh, Pastor, you know, talk with your boss. Maybe you are the boss and you don't need to talk to anybody. I don't know. Uh, but if you're interested, let me know. We'll set up a time and we'll do that. And uh, that's all I'd say about that. Uh, so back to First Samuel chapter 17. I've titled this message this morning, The Giant Slayer. Today we'll be reading one of the most well-known stories in all of the Old Testament, perhaps even of all of the Bible. We'll be reading the story of David and Goliath. We've, we've all heard this story. But even as it's one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, it's also one of the most misunderstood stories in the Bible. Let me, let me explain. For example, some people make a big deal about why David picked up five stones instead of one. Why why did he pick up five stones if the first one was going to knock down the giant? Um, Others make the story about how we can defeat. You can defeat the giants in your own life if you just act like David. Um, If we had the faith of David, we can defeat our giants. And some actually do a little bit of both. Consider this one quote from an author. He, He writes, and I quote, The five smooth stones David had in his pouch represent what David carried in his heart. Faith, trust, courage. Obedience and praise. Whenever we face any kind of giant in our lives, we can carry these five stones with us wherever we go and each and face each giant one stone at a time and receive victory. Um, Another author wrote this. He said that the that these five smooth stones represent faith, obedience, service, prayer, and the Holy Ghost. Now, of course, the natural question we might want to ask either one of these authors is you know which one of those stones was the one that actually struck down the giant right um, you know are the other stones somehow less important, or do I really just need the one stone because it only took one stone to knock down the giant? Maybe the other stones are secondary or something of that nature but of course, what I hope you'll you'll see this morning is that those stones, those five stones they don't represent the qualities of David's heart, and they're not five smooth stones of gospel behavior. That's not what they represent. In fact, I'm going to argue that they don't represent anything in just a few minutes. But if the stones aren't meant to represent something for us, then and, and if the story really isn't about us defeating our own giants, then how are we to understand this story? And so let's turn our attention to God's Word, and then I hope to answer those questions as we get into the text. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, say amen if you're there. It's a longer chapter, I'm going to read every word of it, um, so follow along with me as I read please. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and a camp between Soko and Azekah, and Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came up out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants, but if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse, whose who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep At Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took a stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of parched grain, and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. And take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they, and all the men of Israel, were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines, and David rose early in the morning, and left the sheep with a keeper, and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment, as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, and ran to the ranks and went up and greeted his brothers as he talked with them. Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard them. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel." And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine to take away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab the His eldest brother heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the, words of David, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his hand, out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook, And put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me. And I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day, to the birds of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came to draw near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout, and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath to the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shirem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, after he said to Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, "As your soul lives, O king, I do not know." And the king said, "Inquire whose boy, whose son this boy is." And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, "Whose son are you, young man?" And David answered, "I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite." This is the word of the Lord pray together. Father, thank you for this day and for your word. Your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And so we pray now in the time that we have that you would use this, your word, to mold us and change us. That your spirit would accompany your words so that lives would be conformed to the image of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're a note taker, I have a central idea. It's a very, very short, simple idea this morning. Um, It's our God saves. Our God saves. And so if you don't remember anything else from this message, leave this morning remember that our God saves. I have four points I want to make from this passage this morning. First point, we will face trials in this world. We will face trials in this world. I think one of the most damaging things ever done to the Christian community is the propagation and spread of the idea of what I called overrealized Christian victory. Overrealized Christian victory. It's the idea that's heard from pulpits week after week across our country, health, wealth, and prosperity teachers who tell you that if you, if you're sick, if you don't have enough money, or if your life just isn't grand, the problem is your lack of faith. Because if you had enough faith, you would have victory over all of these things. But beloved, that's just not true. It's not true. Every day, faithful Christians die. They die from cancer. They die from heart disease. They die from a myriad of other causes. And they don't die because they lack faith. They die because they're human. They die because we live in a broken world. And we're broken people. Every day, there are faithful Christians who struggle to make ends meet. Sometimes they struggle because they've made sinful choices with whatever income they have. But oftentimes, they struggle simply because life is hard in this world. In our story today, the Israelites are faced once again with their archenemy, the Philistines. We've already read about the Philistines a number of times. Most notably, we read about them a few chapters back. They're the ones that captured the Ark of the Covenant from God. Um, and the Ark stayed with the Philistines for, for a lengthy time until God sent uh, a plague of tumors on the Philistines. And only after that plague of tumors did, was the Ark returned to the people of God. My point here is this, is that they were in an ongoing war. Regular skirmishes between the people of God and the Philistines. But why? Why, why, were, why were they fighting so much? Why were these skirmishes happening? We could probably list reason after reason for why they were fighting. Chief among those reasons, however, would be the fact that both the people of God as well as the Philistines, they were sinful people. We could add to that, by the way, that they're living in close proximity to one another. And so when you have sinful people living in close proximity to one another, oftentimes skirmishes happen. And the same thing happens to us, by the way. We're, we're no different than the ancient, Philistines, uh, ancient Israelites. We tend to fight and quarrel with those who are closest to us, or at least in closest proximity to us. You know, we don't have disputes with the man living on Tiergartenstrasse in Germany. We have disputes with our next-door neighbor, or the one maybe two doors down, uh, or sometimes, God forbid, even with those underneath the same roof. And as long as we live in this world, we will continue to have this type of trouble. We will continue to have conflict. But our conflict will come in a variety of ways, in, a, in different shapes and sizes. The way it happens to me may be different than the way it happens to you. For some of us, our troubles will be relational troubles. Perhaps there's a strained relationship in your immediate family or in your extended family. Perhaps there's a strained relationship with a church member. Perhaps it's a strained relationship with a coworker. And so we have relational troubles. For the, for others of us, the troubles that we have are more internal struggles. They're internal to ourselves. We, maybe we struggle with a private sin that we seem to be trapped in its grip. We may be struggling with desires that we wish that we would rather not have. Some statistics, some statistics report, for example, that as many as just over 10% of all women have at one time in their life struggled with attraction to someone of the same sex. 10%. Ten percent, and the same is true for just under ten percent of all men. Maybe that's not you. Well, I, I shudder to think what percentages of men and women both would have at one time struggled at some point in in your life to being attracted to somebody who wasn't your spouse. Now, don't worry; I'm not. We're not going to like raise hands and take a poll to see which group you fit into. Uh, But my point is this, as Christians, we recognize that, you know, when we act out on any type of sexual behavior other than that with our spouse and a monogamous relationship with our spouse, it's sinful. And so my guess is then a large percentage of us in this room have at one time or another struggled with desires that we would rather not have. And we could go on with example after example after example of things that we've all experienced in our lives. We've all experienced what it's like to be a broken people in a broken world. We know that experience. And sometimes that brokenness expresses itself in larger ways than others. You see, the Israelites were used to struggling with the Philistines. Going into the battle with the Philistines, it it wouldn't have made the front page of the Jerusalem Times. It, It was a normal thing. They were accustomed to these skirmishes with the Philistines. But in our text today there was something different. There was something new. In our text today there was a giant among the Philistines. His name was Goliath. And he was from Gath. And he was tall. Very tall. According to the Hebrew text of the Bible, he was six cubits and a span. Six cubits. Um, Some early translations from the Hebrew have him only at four cubits and a span. Either way, since a cubit is 18 inches, a span is half a cubit, either way he was a very tall man. Personally, I believe he was six cubits in a span, just what it says here in the text, which would have made him just a bit over nine and a half feet tall. Now you might think, that's clearly not true. Why, why would that clearly not be true? Now mind you, it would be exceedingly rare for somebody to be that tall, but it's not unreasonable. I did a little research this week as I was preparing in the last 150 years, there have been 11 men, known men were they've measured 11 men who are over 8 feet tall. Over 8 feet. One of them is still living right now. One of them was less than an inch from being 9 feet tall. And then it I found this super interesting. Back in the 1600, there was actually a woman who was 8 feet 4 inches tall. That's, I was like, wow. Yeah, I've heard of men being this tall, but an 8 foot 4 inch tall woman. So, these things do happen. So, let's get back to Goliath, right? This giant Goliath, we're told, he came out every morning, every evening, 40 days, and he taunted the Israelites. He said to them, was verse 10, He said to them, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And after 80 times of taunting them, How many people step forward to say, I'll take him on? None. Zero. Nada. Beloved, we face trials in this world. What type of trial are you facing? That's point number one. Point number two. When we face doubt, we need to remember that our God saves. When we face doubt, we need to remember that our God saves. Doubt is an honest emotion that we sometimes face in the midst of difficulties. We may wonder, for example, if we're always going to struggle with that particular besetting sin. Or we may wonder if God is ever going to actually heal our physical bodies on this side of eternity. Or we may doubt, you know, am I ever going to be able to afford to send my children to college? Life is full of doubt. Even if we know who holds the future, we don't necessarily know what our future holds, right? Right? We're not omniscient. We don't know everything, and so sometimes we doubt. It's part of our humanness. It's part of what Francis Schaeffer would call the manishness of man. It's just what makes us human beings. When the Goliath, when the giant Goliath taunted Israel, Israel was afraid. They doubted. They didn't know what their future would hold for them. We read in verse eleven, right after he taunts them, it says, "When Saul." And all Israel heard these words of the Philistines. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. And when the giant would say the same thing day after day after day, 80 times, we're told in verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, that is when they saw Goliath, fled from him and were much afraid. We're even told that David's older brother, Eliab, and his passive aggressive behavior toward his brother David, Eliab belittles his brother. Remember that his, and your few sheep that you're supposed to be keeping charge of. And then even Eliab, he, Eliab gets angry at David. It's interesting, right? David's genuinely confused about why Eliab is, is mad at him. Um, you know, he says, well, what, what have I done now? Was it, was it not but a word? I, I found it funny as I was preparing this week because in my mind I can picture that same thing happening all across the country. Uh, all across the world, even we have, like two siblings getting in an argument, and one of them goes, "Well, you know, what what did I do this time?" Um, but but why is Eliab getting mad? We're not told directly in the text, but I think we can put the pieces together. We know Eliab is part of Saul's army, and we're told that everybody everybody in Saul's army, without exception, they were all afraid of the giant Eliab, or excuse me, Goliath, and so. We can assume then that Eliab was among those who was afraid. And so I'm sure it didn't sit well with Eliab that his brother, by the way, the same brother who had recently been chosen to be the future king over, over Eliab, that now, now his little brother wasn't showing any fear. He wasn't showing any doubt in the face of the giant. And so Eliab gets angry. He gets mad at his brother, which leads to his sinful outburst of anger. So we have the king getting angry. We have all of of Israel getting angry, doubting. We have Eliab doubting, getting angry. His brother. When when, when David gets finally to the point where he's going to go fight the giant, even King Saul himself, he he says to David in verse 33, he says, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth. And he has been a man from his youth. And so the king, again, you you can't do this, David. It's, It's a fool's errand, David. And then finally, even Goliath throws shade on David, doesn't he? We're told in verses 42 and 43, And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David with his words. But in all of this, Why doesn't David doubt? Why is David so steadfast? Beloved, he's steadfast because he doesn't take his eyes off God. When he hears the taunts of the giant, David replies in the latter half of verse 26. You can see that there. He says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And pay attention to this. He says that he should defy the armies of the living God. Beloved, the answer to our doubts is to put our eyes on God. So are you struggling with besetting sin? Besetting means something that is a regular sin, something you just, I just can't, I can't seem to shake this. Put your eyes on God. He might not, you know, you might say, is he just going to take it away? Maybe, maybe not. But either way, he'll give you the strength you need to fight it. Maybe you're praying for healing. Set your eyes on God. He may bring healing on this side of eternity. He's certainly capable of doing that, but then again, our physical heal- healing may await us in our resurrected body, in the new heavens, in the new earth. Either way, either way, listen, we can rest assured knowing that this is true, that He will heal us. It's going to happen. Take it to the bank. Maybe you're struggling with your finances. Set your eyes on God. I mean, there's little chance that you're going to like, get some financial windfall. Um, you know, you're going to win the lottery. So that, that, don't count on that, beloved. I mean, it happens, but don't count on that happening. Set your eyes on God. And as we focus on God, we begin to notice the things that are of importance to God. Which then, the things that we thought were important, these things that we thought would bring happiness, These things that would promise fulfillment in this world, that don't deliver, they only disappoint. We realize that God is the one who brings true and lasting satisfaction. So when we face doubts, we need to remember that it's our God who saves. Point number three. When we wrongly trust in other sources, we need to remember that our God saves. When we wrongly trust in other sources, we need to remember that our God saves. As we saw just a few moments ago, Saul doubts David's ability to fight the giant Goliath. But David's persistent in his faith, and so Saul, he relents. He allows David to represent Israel to go fight against the mighty giant. But even, even as Saul allows David to fight Goliath, Saul still doesn't believe that David can do it, at least not on his own, right? Now, how do you know that? How do I know that? That's why Saul tells David, you have to wear my armor. If you're going to do this, you have to wear my armor. And Saul even goes beyond just telling David to wear it. Notice from the text in verse 38, we're told that Saul actually puts the armor on David. It's like Saul's saying to David, listen, if you're going to fight him, this is a non-negotiable, you're going to have to wear this. And he, goes, and he puts it on David. You have to wear this. And so, So David, he obediently puts on the armor only to take it off again. He tells Saul, I, I can't do this. I can't do it with this. I haven't tested them. And so off comes the armor. Well, what's, what's happening here? Well, There are a couple of things happening here. First, Saul is putting too much trust in the things that he ought not to trust. Saul believes that the armor is the key to victory. But it's not. And beloved, we do the same thing sometimes. We put... Trust in things that we ought not to trust. Maybe, maybe we trust our own intellect. We, we think that we're, we're smart enough to figure out this problem. You know, I've, I've been to school for this. I've worked in this field for it. I'm smart enough. But as smart as we might be, as many years as perhaps we've studied something, we'll miss something. We'll miss some detail. I mean, just think, think about the uh, COVID pandemic. When it, when it first struck, we were encouraged to listen to the experts. And for the record, I want to be the first one to affirm that there is a good and proven role for experts in our society. I'm not, I'm not against experts. But isn't it interesting now that some of those same experts are saying things completely different than what they said at the beginning of the pandemic? Because, listen, even an expert, even somebody with a supremely gifted intellect, they can't think about everything they 're not omniscient, only God is omniscient, and so we ought not to trust solely on our intellect it doesn 't mean that we don 't think about things, but we don 't trust solely on our intellect it 's not sufficient we don 't trust in our intellect. others of us we might we might trust in our ability to size a person up, you know whether that 's somebody we 've known for a few weeks or for a few years we think oh, i got 've got a good handle on who this person is, and to be fair. Without a doubt, the longer we know somebody, the more we'll know about that someone. But even then, we never get perfect knowledge of that person, do we? I've been married to my wife for more than a quarter of a century now. And I would dare say that there's nobody in this world I know better than my wife. I know her better than anybody. But after a quarter century plus of marriage, I'm still learning new things about my wife. And praise God for that. And she, I hope, is learning. I hope I'm not like the same person. I hope she's learning things about me as well. So don't trust in your ability to size somebody up. Or maybe we think, you know, sometimes evangelicals, we get into this this bag, we, we think we can trust the political process. If we can just get enough Democrats, or if we can just get enough Republicans elected to office, then, then that's going to that's gonna fix all of our woes if we can just get that to happen. Or if we can just get enough Supreme Court justices who feel like we do about a particular issue, if that happens, everything's going to be great. And while I will be, again, one of the first ones to say that elections have consequences and it's important for Christians to vote, it's important for us to vote, you should vote, I would also be very quick to caution the politically active Christian to to realize that legislation doesn't change hearts. Only Jesus changes hearts. Legislation is important, but it's not going to fix all of our woes. We can't trust in that. And so sometimes we trust in the wrong sources. As important as those sources may be. So we're not not saying that those sources are unimportant. But those sources aren't ultimately important. They play a role, but we need to be careful to realize that they only play a role. Ultimately, it's God who saves. Now, here's how that fits the text this morning. You see, David ultimately he draws on his own experience as he prepares to fight the giant Goliath, doesn't he? When Saul doubts David's ability to fight against him, David has something to say to Saul. He says this, you can follow with me in verse 34 and following. David says to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So what, what do we see happening here? Is David trusting in his own experience? Well, yes and no. He's not trusting solely in his experience, but David is trusting in God's faithfulness to him in his past experience. He's counting on God's continued faithfulness in his future experience based on how God has delivered him through his past experience. In other words, David's saying, I know from experience that God is faithful. He's proven his faithfulness to me time and time again, and I believe God is going to be faithful to me again in the future. He's trusting in God, but he's trusting in how God has showed up in his life time and time again. And that same principle takes takes us to those five smooth stones. I promised we would get to that. Why why did he pick up five stones? What, what, was he picking up faith, trust, courage, obedience, praise? No, that's not what he was picking up. Some people say, you know, Goliath had four brothers. And so David was picking up enough stones so he could fight all the brothers. And we laughed, but... David, or excuse me, Goliath did have brothers. We'll read about them in 2 Samuel. Goliath does have brothers, but he's not fighting them here. It's not why he picked up five stones right now. So what's David doing? It's, it's actually quite simple. He's preparing himself for battle. That's what he's doing. We, we make this big deal about the five stones and what do they represent. Nowhere in our text are we told that David knew that it was only going to take one stone to strike down Goliath. Nowhere are we told that he only took one stone to strike down the lion or to strike down the bear. David knows how to enter a fight. He knows he needs to be prepared. And so he brings five stones with him. As it turned out, he only needed one. But had he missed with the first one, he was going to be prepared. And beloved, there's a lot of application there for us. Are we prepared? To encounter whatever it is that God will put before us. Suppose tomorrow at work or at school someone makes the argument to you and they say, Christianity has done more harm than it has good. And they point to things like the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition and they, they here's proof that Christianity has done more harm than it's good. Are you prepared to make a counter argument? Do you know enough about the history of Christianity in this world that you could show someone that Christianity has actually been one of the greatest forces for good this world has ever known, or are you just going to go, "Oh, I didn't know that, or suppose you and your neighbor you're talking to one another and you you get the courage, you bring up God to the discussion, you you feel really good about yourself, you know pastor tells me I should be talking to my neighbors about Jesus, and so you you bring up God in the discussion you know so good so good, so far, or so far so good, whatever and and then and then she says to you. You know, I don't believe that God can be all powerful and good. I just don't believe that. And she continues and says, because if He were all powerful, He would do away with um, suffering in the world, if He were all powerful. And if He were good, He would want to do away with suffering in the world. And so the fact that there is suffering in the world means that He's either not all powerful or He's not good. Or maybe He's not neither, but... And then she looks at you and waits for your response. Now, you, are you prepared to tell your neighbor how God can be both all-powerful and good and still allow suffering in this world? Do you know what you would say? There are really, really good answers to those types of questions. Are you prepared to give any of them? Now you might be thinking, well, tell us one of those answers. I'm not going to give you that answer right now. This isn't a sermon on apologetics. I'm not going to give you that answer. My question is simply, are you ready? David was ready. He had five stones with him because he was prepared. If you're not prepared, what are you doing about getting prepared? David knew what it took to go into battle. He had already done these things. David knew you know, when I go to fight the, the lion, when I go to fight the bear, I need to be ready. And so David was ready when he went to fight the giant. But... As we're preparing ourselves, we need to be mindful that we're not preparing ourselves with the wrong sources, but with the right sources. Final point. Point number four is when we face life's most difficult enemy, we need to remember that Jesus was better than David. We need to remember that Jesus is better than David. You might think, Pastor, you do this all the time. Here we are in the Old Testament, you're reading something, and all of a sudden... You know Jesus, his name isn't mentioned anywhere in this passage. Where, where is Jesus coming from in this passage? What, how is that all? What's all that about? Uh, let me read something to you. This is our from our church's statement of faith. This is the first article of our statement of faith. So if you're a member of this church, by being a member of the church, you say you believe this. That's what it means to have a statement of faith. We say we affirm that this is true. So I'm gonna just read a quote. Quote. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of Himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. And it has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is Himself the focus of divine revelation. Now, I read that whole statement, article because the whole article is important, but I want us to focus on that last sentence. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is Himself the focus of divine revelation. The Bible itself tells us that Jesus is the focus of the Scriptures, and when the Bible is saying that, by the way, since the New Testament is still being written at that point, the Bible has in mind the Old Testament Scriptures. In other words, the writings of the Old Testament are also a testimony to Christ, and the writings of the Old Testament also have Jesus as the focus. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're not going to turn there right now, but in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is told that God is going to raise up David's offspring. And to, he's going to build a house for God's name. And God is going to establish the throne of David's offspring forever. Those words there in 2 Samuel, they have what's called both a near and a far fulfillment. Here's what that means. So in one sense, we know that David's son Solomon fulfilled those words. Solomon is the one who builds the first temple to God. But, but we also know that Solomon's kingdom isn't established forever. In fact, far from it. Right, right after Solomon dies, the kingdom is divided in two. Solomon's kingdom doesn't even last one generation, much less forever. So in one sense, we might say Solomon fulfills that in a near sense, that it near in time to when the prophecy was given. But in another sense, in a more important sense, Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy in a far sense. In a, like, almost thousand year difference between when the prophecy was made and when Jesus came. Because it's Jesus' kingdom that is established forever. This is why, this is why the New Testament authors take great pains to teach us that Jesus was really a descendant of David. That he was one of David's sons. It was to prove that this prophecy is true. But how does all that relate to 1 Samuel 17 and David and Goliath? Well, as I argued earlier, this passage ultimately, or is ultimately about, excuse me, is not ultimately about how we defeat the giants in our lives. Now, there can be application to that effect, for sure, but that's not what it's really ultimately about. The ultimate point of this passage is that Jesus is actually better than David. You see, David was a man of war. He accomplished great things for God. But David was also a fallen, broken, sinful man. He trusted in God. He had great faith, but he was flawed, deeply flawed. And even at the pinnacle of his life, David showed himself to be a man who was capable of adultery and murder. So for all of his greatness, listen to me, listen to me, beloved. For all of his greatness, there was one giant that even David couldn't slay. And that giant's name was sin. David couldn't defeat that giant. Try as he might, he couldn't do it. And I want to break some heartbreaking news to, to us. We can't do it either. We, we can't defeat the giant of sin. Not, not on our own. We don't have that ability. We're not capable of defeating the giant of sin. There's only one person who's ever defeated the giant of sin, and his name is Jesus. You see, Jesus defeated that giant, our most difficult enemy. Chances are none of us in this room are going to face a a nine-foot-and-a-half giant carrying a spear and a a sword. We're not going to do that. But we're all, every one of us, going to face a far more dangerous giant. And we will do that every day. And this is where we need to learn to lean on Jesus. Because only through Jesus can we defeat that giant. Jesus, through His death, burial, and resurrection, through the cross, Jesus defeated that giant. If you've never trusted in Jesus, if you've never turned from your sin to trust in Jesus, I would encourage you to do that today. Because if you're not trusting in Jesus, that means you're still trying to defeat that giant on your own. You're thinking, if if I just... If maybe if I rearrange my habits in my life, if I, if I just get, if I get a good support group, if I get this, if I get that, whatever, if I, get, if I get enough of this, then I'm going to be able to defeat that giant. And I'm going to just tell you that's a fool's errand. Cause I've been there and done that. Been there and done that. You can't do it on your own. Only through Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your grace and your kindness to us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you help us as your people to, to live in, in a way that brings you honor and glory. Lord, that we're to live lives prepared for action, but ultimately trusting in you. Ultimately trusting through your son Jesus. And so, Father, we I pray that if there's anyone here today who's never trusted in Christ, Lord, that they would do that even now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to read this Scripture, which would again refer to the importance of us preparing, but then not relying on ourselves. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 6, "...Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil." For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Again, our, our wrestle is against sin. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done so, to stand firm. Therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. God bless you and have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.